We're going to be looking at 1 Peter, 1 Peter, that uh, letter in the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament, 1 Peter, uh, for lots of reasons that I'll explain just in a moment. Um, there's, there's two things that we want to do alongside it. You know that if you're part of our church, you know that we take seriously that our lives should be and can be shaped by Scripture. Um, whatever else we were about at the church, and there's many things that we're about, I hope that you know that we are absolutely committed to this central idea that, that Scripture starts to shape the way we think and the way we act and the way we react in our everyday lives. And um, there's a couple of ways we want to offer to you so you can actually engage with this. So it's not just a matter of turning up to a service on a Sunday, listening to uh, a, 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 a preach and then go away again. And so if you're interested, there are a couple of books that we would recommend. There's this book by Tom Wright um, called Early Christian Letters for Everyone. And what this is, is um, probably around 400 to 500 words that deal, that just take a little bit of the text and it gives us sort of like a daily commentary. These little commentaries, things like this, if you read the Bible and some days, or indeed often, you read and you go, I don't really understand what's going on there. That's not you being thick. Okay? It's actually you just needing a bit of a guide. And to be honest, we all do. And the one who probably uses these, these sort of books and others more than anybody in the room is me, <laughs> in, in all honesty. Um, because you need people who spend long time thinking about this sort of stuff. So rather than just give up on the Bible because it doesn't seem to make any sense, and nobody would blame you if you did that, find a guide. Find someone who's trusted who can actually help you. And for this one, Peter, I would suggest that and that either. Um, this is called Everyday Church by uh, two guys called Tim Chester and Steve Timmis, who lead church in Sheffield. And uh, it's, again, it's just a, a, a flow through 1 Peter. Both of those, either of those, would be really helpful if you're interested in reading about 1 Peter. They both cost around £7 on a site that you can get on the internet that begins with A. So I'll leave those on the back uh, table, not for you to take, for you to look at. All right. Uh, we've got an up-to-date address list now, so I know where you live. Um, but let me explain why 1 Peter becomes so important, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll read it a little bit. We're going to read a, a short piece today and, and sort of try and chew it over. 1 Peter is asking the question and trying to address the question for early Christians. It's probably written around 30 years after Jesus has died and, and resurrected. So it's within sort of an early generation. And these people are scattered. They're scattered in what we would call Turkey and, and, and all around, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. And, and what Peter's wanting to do, he's wanting to say to these believers, you ha are different. And you have a role to play that God wants you to play. Um, this week, both Mary and myself were, were rung up by Radio 5 
Um, I think this may happen more and more now that they're on our doorstep. Um, but they rang us up and they said, well, this is the conversation they had with me, they said, we're doing a programme about midlife crisis. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I laughed. <laughs> I said, so what has that got to do with me? Um, and um, they said, you know, we're going to do it monthly. And I said, you person you really need to talk to is Mary. That's your mother. Um, <laughs> I didn't. But um, they, this, this young girl uh, was talking to me on the phone about they're doing this programme that begins a monthly programme. It'll be on at midnight on a Tuesday night. So it's going to be well listened to. Um, and people can ring in if they're having a midlife crisis. And uh, she said to me, she said, do people in your church talk to you about midlife crises? So then I thought and looked in my mind's eye, imagination at you lot and go, no. But then she said, and I said, well, you know, sometimes it comes up when we, we've sort of got change points in our lives and we're wondering what's going on. And we do talk about, well, what's life about and how do you make sense of it and all that sort of stuff. And she said, then she said, how do you comfort them? <laughs> and I said, oh, no, I don't do that. <laughs> I did. I said, oh, no, I don't do that. I said, you've got to know, I don't think religion is about comforting people at all. I said, I think if you think that religion is about bringing comfort to people, you've misunderstood what we're about. I said, and more to the point, I don't think the Bible's about comforting you. I think what, <laughs> I think the Bible really is about facing up. I nearly told her about Ecclesiastes. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna die. Um, so I said, <laughs> I said it's, it's not about comfort, it's actually about facing up to the reality of life and knowing how do you live in the midst of it. Uh, she was a little bit taken aback by this point, and she said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I said, well, you know. <laughs> anyway, I think my Tuesday nights are going to be free. Um, <laughs> but it was just, it, it just brought it home to me again. And, and it's a thought that's been going through in my mind in, in lots of different contexts, is that often the, the view that people outside church have is that the Christian faith is there to comfort you. That's not an, it's not, you know, it, it's not an unusual thought to have. But it's completely wrong. But you know what? The view that lots of Christians have inside church is not that often, sometimes, not that far different. That our faith is there to inspire us, motivate us, to give us a sense of being, you know, belonging to God and it's about us. But I think this is, this is the deal. That all of those things are byproducts. I think all of those things are byproducts. I think that lots of the things we actually long for are byproducts of the true. You know, we long to feel that we belong. But actually, the purpose of church is not that you might belong. The purpose of church is to point to the kingdom. And the, the offshoot of that is that you find a community that you can relate to. The main purpose, and I'm going to say this really head on, and then I'll repeat myself, I know I will. The main purpose that God got hold of your life was because he wants to use you for his purpose. God got hold of your life because he wants to use you for his purpose. 
And I think I've said this recently. It's not that somehow you can enlist God to help you. The purpose that God had in putting his hand on you was that you might be used for his purpose. Now that's actually a shift in our minds that sometimes some of us find it quite difficult to take. Because we begin by thinking, you know, and, and sometimes we hear stories of how people come to faith. And it, you know, for some people it just begins, oh God, help. And I, I don't doubt for a moment that God hears those prayers and answers them and actually does help. Of course God helps. But the primary relationship is not that God is your helper while you get on with your life. The primary relationship is that he is Lord and he gets hold of you and says, I want to use you for the sake of the kingdom. The moment he got hold of you, he said, I've got a purpose for you. Now, lots of questions emerge then. And the big question, I guess, that emerges immediately for most of us is, what? And how? And why? And me? And all of those are actually quite reasonable questions. But I think that what Peter is doing when he writes this letter to those Christians in the first century is saying, you're in a difficult situation. And they were. I'll explain that in a minute. You're in a difficult situation. You're in a situation where it doesn't feel right, and it doesn't feel like you fit. But that doesn't get you off the hook about the fact that God wants to use you. And in that way, I think Peter becomes quite an interesting and relevant letter for most of us. Because for most of us, most of the time, it feels like this isn't quite ideal. Most of us live lives that don't feel ideal. We've got pressures, or we've got stresses, or we've got strains, or we've got situations that often we just feel it's not quite what we would want. And Peter would say to you and to me, well, actually, even in the midst of that, God wants to use you. Does that make sense? That's not the sermon. That's just the introduction, which is a bit alarming, isn't it, at this point? <laughs> This is uh, really the, the idea of Peter, is that we live as exiles. We live as exiles. This is the passage I want us to, uh, to look at. And it's the first two verses. So this, they're, they're here, and these are all we're going to look at. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, that's that area in what we would call Turkey. Who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Listen how Peter begins his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not Peter the church leader, not Peter, the one on whom the church would be built, but Peter, an apostle of. The word apostle simply can mean the sent one, the one who has been sent by Jesus. Peter describes himself to these listeners only in reference to what Jesus has done for him. Peter, the man who denied Jesus. Peter, the renamed one. Do you remember in the Gospels how initially Jesus comes to him and says, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to rename you. Your character will change. 
Peter, the sent one. Without wanting to sort of stress this too much, beginning when we start talking about mission, when we start talking about how God might want to use you, your primary identity is not Neil, leader of the church, or Neil, husband, or Neil, father, or you know, Mary, um, uh, w- worker in the vine, or, or you as single parent, or you as retired person, or you as woman, or you as a man, or you as dot, dot, dot. Your primary identity is in relationship to Jesus. That's your primary identity. Because that will shape everything else about you. And the way we describe ourselves is really important. The way we describe ourselves is the way we understand each other and ourselves. And Peter had no doubt that he could only be described in relation to Jesus. You see, what Peter wants to do, he wants to begin with who you are. Once you have an idea of your identity, this week it's about who you are, next week we'll look at what have you been given, then all the weeks after will be, so what do you do? But you mustn't get to what do you do before you've understood deeply your identity, deeply what you've been given, because otherwise you'll go to activism and your activism will always lead you into trouble. But if you work from a secure sense of who am I, And what has been done for me? What has God done? Then your activity proceeds from a really secure base. I think that one of the issues that most of us face is this question of identity. Who am I? Who do you think I am? (laughs) Do I match up to your expectations? Are you pleased with me? Do you like me? Do you reject me? Am I good enough? And depending on the mix of what's gone in the background, that becomes more and more difficult for some people. And Peter begins with these people to say, you've got to understand your identity. And so he, in his letter, he begins, Peter, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God's elect, exiles. That word exiles becomes like a framing word for Peter. This idea of strangers, aliens, people who don't quite fit, but you're God's elect. God's elect and exiles. The two go together. And the third thing about you is that you're scattered. You're scattered in a place where you don't feel you belong. You are exiles and aliens. Now this, this idea, and I've not got time to do it in any detail, but the idea of being an exile and an alien, it was like a, a, a class, you know, like upper class, middle class, lower class. You could have a full uh, citizen, and that was like, you know, you were really a citizen of, of Rome and you belonged, and that meant you had huge, huge rights. Do you remember the story of Paul when he gets beaten up in Philippi and, and he says, ah, but you don't know I'm a citizen of Rome. <gasps> And everything stops for a moment. Wow, 
didn't know you were a citizen of Rome. If you're a citizen of Rome, that means you've got the whole weight of the empire. It's like having a British passport. You've got the whole weight of, not quite the same. You've got the whole weight of ambassadors who will help you out. So that was like full citizenship. The bottom of the pile were, were slaves or freed people. People who weren't full citizens, they were sort of deemed to be at the bottom. And in the middle were exiles, strangers, people who didn't belong, but they were included in. Now, some people think that what Paul is doing, when he writes to these people in what we now call Turkey, these people actually had been sent out from Rome. At this time, around sort of 55 to 65, it wasn't that Christians weren't being persecuted in the way that they would be eventually persecuted, which is, you know, clothed in tar and... and, 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 and Put, set alight or put in with the lions and the gladiators. It wasn't that sort of persecution, but it was this sort of underlying, grumbling persecution. And some of them had been sent out from Rome. Now, one of the reasons that Rome did this is that Rome couldn't have their city get so many people in it, so they sent them out to the colonies. And it could be that these people actually were people who were exiles. It was like, we don't belong here. But the point is... Peter uses it in two ways. He uses it, actually, you may well be in a place you don't belong. And secondly, he uses it as a metaphor. And one of the things I want to say to you this morning is that your identity in Christ is not dependent on you feeling you're in the right place. The two things are completely different. You can know that you're a child of God, able to be used by God, and live in places that are inhospitable, that are a pain, that are annoying, that are painful. Your identity remains secure. Your place, your location can actually feel quite distressing. And Paul writes to them as God's elect exiles. But of course, the moment he uses that word, for those of us who know the Bible story, we hear Abraham didn't belong, kept on moving. Moses in Egypt, the people of God in exile. And if it's any help to remember, most of the Bible is written to people who feel they're in the wrong place. Most of the Bible is written to and about people who feel they're not in the right place. They are God's elect, exiles scattered, but they've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This idea of identity for Peter is not just can you summon it up enough? Can you somehow get the emotion enough to know that you belong? It's that actually he wants to say, the same as Paul did, that before the creation of the world, God put his hand on you before you were dreamt about. You were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. He knows you. He knows you. Now, in a context where lots of times you wonder, well, what's happening? What's happening to me? Why is this happening? And who am I? And all the rest of it. Peter wants to begin for these first century Christians and go, do you know what? 
all of it might feel like it's spinning out of control. But you need to know your identity is fixed on the idea that God chose you. And if we're going to stand in that first century understanding of God's relationship to us, it comes down, and it's as cliched as this, but it's as true as this. The reason you're here this morning is because God knew you before you knew God. God chose you before you thought you chose God. God put his hand on you before you put your hand up to God. God saw you before the creation of the world and he chose you. Now, the only question then is, what for? <laughs> what for? He chose you that you might be part of the people of God, the chosen people of God, in order that you might display the glory of God to the world that he loves so much. You've been chosen for a purpose. You certainly haven't been chosen to sit in church and go, aren't I a good person? Aren't I, isn't it remarkably fortunate that I've been chosen? You've been the moment you accept that fact that God somehow knew you before and put his hand upon you and said, you're mine, that that in itself gives you the sense of, okay, well, my life must be worth more than I imagined. My life must have greater purpose than I ever could have thought because God chose me. It comes with blessing and responsibility. And this was the, the, uh, the story of Israel, isn't it? What's the problem with the story of Israel in the Old Testament is they knew they were chosen. They just didn't think they had to do anything about it. They took the, they took the rights, but they didn't think they had a responsibility until Jesus comes, the one chosen before the creation of the world who took upon himself the right to be called a son and the responsibility to carry the sin of the world. You and I are chosen and foreknown. I don't think, and, and, and you know, people with better brains than ours have tried to do this. To try and actually understand all of this is, it can lead you into abstract theology, can lead you into abstract speculation that's actually not that helpful in the end, raises more questions for you than you'll ever find you, you have an answer. So you lean into it and you go, well, actually, if that's what's written over my life, I'm going to live in the light of what's written over me. I'm going to live in the light of what's written over me. The second thing Peter says, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. To be sanctified by the Spirit literally means to be set apart. Sanctification is very closely linked with this idea of growing in holiness. Now, those of us that are older and been around church longer, we used to know what holiness was. Holiness was very simple. It meant you didn't wear lipstick, you didn't go to the pictures, and you didn't play football on a Sunday. That's what holiness was. And it's easy now to laugh at it all, but one of the reasons they did that was, to be fair, it also meant, if, if I'm really honest, I think looking back, that um, there was a lot more prohibitions if you were a woman. You seem to have a bit of a bad deal about the whole thing. But, um, but the reason they did that was because actually you were, you were different. You were set apart. You were holy. Now, to be holy doesn't mean to say that you are perfect. And it certainly, please, doesn't mean that you are pious. 
But to be holy means that you have a deep sense that I have been set aside for use by God. That's what holy things were in temples. They were things that were set apart, often prayed over, often cleansed, often used for use for the sake of God. That's how Peter writes to these ordinary people in Turkey. He says, you have been sanctified, you've been set apart, you're different. You have been put in a place where you can be used by God. And how's that happened? Through the Spirit. This idea that God commits himself to us so much that he takes off himself and he gives us himself in order to use us. Quite remarkable when you start to think about it. It's worth thinking through that one. That doesn't mean that you just lie back and go, well, the Spirit will do it. Of course it means that you're going to cooperate with that. But actually, your growth in grace is not you screwing up all your energy and doing more. It's actually recognizing, I'm chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. God wants to use you. He's Well, I think that's how many of us would feel. I wish he'd hurry up. (laughs) But he does. He wants to bring us to a place where increasingly our lives are reflecting the glory of Jesus. Change from one degree to the next. As we who with unveiled faces reflect the glory of God. There's that sort of sense of how how does it happen? Well, one of the ways it happens is you come into the presence of God. You pray, you read the Bible, you come into the presence of God. And as you do, he is at work changing you. It's not moral improvement. It's actually as you go, God, I'm yours and I want to be used by you. I think God, by his spirit, starts to point out things in your life. because, well, actually then, if I'm going to use you, you're going to have to stop doing that. And it's not that you might end up, quote unquote, perfect, but it's because you can't do that and be used by God. Let me use a really simple example. If you tell lies to get yourself out of a situation, it is really likely that the Spirit is going to go at some point, stop telling lies. Because how can you be used by God as a trustworthy agent of the kingdom If, when push comes to shove, you're frightened, too frightened to tell the truth about what you've done. That's a simple, it's a small example, it's a childish example almost. Well, you put your own in. Because the purpose of all this is that you might be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. This is where life begins to get quite interesting. Because it's what does it mean to be obedient to Jesus in the place you're scattered into? I was really pleased to hear about your story at school this week. Without wanting to sort of embarrass you in any way. But how, how do stories like that become reality? I think they, they start years ago when people like Faye say, I just want to be obedient to you here. Here. And we prayed that lots of times, so I kind of feel that part of the prayer that part of the, this week was the answer prayers that have been prayed over you 
in years gone by. And it's the same for each of us. What does it mean for you to be obedient to Jesus where you will be this time tomorrow? Now, obedience to Jesus is not, I won't, <laughs> I won't swear, I won't take money out of the till and I'll be nice to people. Well, actually it is. If you're doing those three things, stop them. Um, <laughs> well, apart from being nice, do, do start that. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's not that sort of personal morality thing it may include that but actually the question is if Jesus is Lord where you are this time tomorrow how would Jesus live your life if he were living your life what does it mean to be obedient where you are because it's going to mean following the character of Jesus and doing the things that he would do to be obedient to Jesus sprinkled with his blood because you mess up and the references to the Leviticus passages that say, how, how do you get back? When you've messed up, how do you get back? Well, you come, sacrifice is made, blood is sprinkled, and you're received. And for us, of course, linked so neatly and so nearly with communion. And Peter says, before we go any further, grace and peace be yours. In abundance. May you know grace, may you know peace in abundance. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the city of Salford, Manchester, and the Northwest, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance.